I'm still on the chapter called Hearing Dharma. <clears throat> you should understand that all the things we practice are for leading the mind to see Dharma and to be Dharma. If you see Dharma, then although you have had the habit of anger, even if it returns, it will come with decreasing energy. The same is true of desires. This is because of the understanding and sensitivity born in the mind from correct practice and understanding. It will change you for the better. You don't need to change or improve on the Dharma. Don't try to resolve things that are done already. Resolve the things that are not yet accomplished facts. If you're trying to plane a piece of wood that's full of knots and hard like a rock, you should know when to give up. Or will you just sit there and cry over it? And if another piece is already smooth and varnished, you don't need to plane it further. Instead, instead of trying to adjust the Dharma to fit you, adjust yourself to fit the Dharma. So there's a um, uh, Lumpur Chah's usual kind of practical advice for drawing upon uh, familiar, at least uh, <laughs> familiar for people involved in woodworking and building, uh, familiar sort of uh, experiences. Um, that the um, uh, as is don't uh, don't try to resolve things that are done already. So rather than trying to sort of change the dharma to fit your preferences, change your preferences to to fit the fit the dharma. And that's is something when we hear those words, we think, well, yeah, well, of course. <laughs> but uh, it's um, remarkably common for um, for us as human beings, and uh, my experience of living in the uh, in the, the Dhamma world and um, various communities over the last many years, that it's not uncommon for people to want to tweak the, the Dhamma to, to fit their own preferences, to adjust the way that things are, are phrased, or, or to also kind of having the Dhamma as a sort of um, an embellishment for your life. And I, I found that um, something that was very quite, uh, quite striking. I, I would say not to uh, look down upon Americans, but a bit more common in America than in this country, uh, this this side of the pond, where um, people would uh, relate to, to Dharma practice and Buddhism as a kind of uh, welcome addition to their life. It's sort of something that is sort of uh, added on to my life and how I like to do things and what I see as important. And then there's my, my Dharma life is not exactly like a, a sort of a brooch that you wear or a particular hat but uh, as a kind of uh, uh, an addition to to my life and so that in a uh, and I would see that as somewhat tragic over and over again and people being a bit sort of frustrated or confused like trying to to practice Dhamma on their own terms and wondering why it didn't bring very good results and if you if you consider it then Practicing Dhamma on my terms is a bit of an oxymoron. It's like, well, if it's my terms, it's not. <laughs> yeah, how much is that really the practice of of, of Dhamma? And that uh, if uh, if we're putting everything into the framework of what what I approve of, what I like, what I uh, what I prefer, um, then it's uh, you're trying to fit the Dhamma into the framework of your own personality, your own self view. And it's it's never going to work. I would suggest that that that's just not something that is going to be helpful. And rather, uh, and this was a, a theme that came up many many times when I was living in the states and, and teaching over there, 
would be uh, when you talk about Dhamma as something that you, you surrender your life to the Dhamma rather than add the Dhamma onto your life. It's like, that's <laughs> in a way that the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the um, people are getting things the wrong way around. The cart is being put before the horse. That's not too antiquated an, an image. But I, I do feel that's um, it's something that is a, a universal issue. And the, the very fact that Lumpur Cha talks about it here uh, to a northeast uh, Thai audience, largely, that uh, instead of trying to adjust the Dhamma to fit you, adjust yourself to, to fit the Dhamma, that this is a, an ancient and a, a sort of long-standing habit. But uh, uh, so... The degree to which we're we're doing that, I think, is up for, for everyone to explore and to see. Well, how much, <laughs> how much does does my mind do it like, like that? Do I do I look at my practice of dhamma, me being uh, in the monastery or in monastic life? How much is this a sort of an interesting thing that I'm doing, or a, a place where I'm uh, I happen to be staying and and seeing it sort of with that sense of, of caution and uh, within the context of you know, my preferences, my uh, my opinions, my my plans, and uh, uh, how much do we uh, do we frame things unconsciously in that way, or, or even consciously, um, and how much do we see rather that uh, the Dhamma is something that that uh, uh, is the the fundamental reality that we uh, we surrender our life to if we if if we want this practice to be beneficial and liberating then to see this life as a uh, that we have as a, an attribute of dhamma rather than dhamma as something that's added on to to my life and my world and and my uh, my ideas my preferences does that make sense any thoughts comments any negotiations? <laughs> yes. I'm a little bit confused. So I did live in the States for a while, and I think maybe I misunderstood what you were saying, but not everyone can become a monastic and surrender to the Dhamma, say, completely like a monastic could. And say, at least what people in Boston were doing, they were very much saying, there's Dika. <laughs> you know, there's um, a struggle there. How can we apply the teachings of the Buddha to our daily life and integrate that to find more ease and more peace? And so it's not, there is an element of how do I fit this into this chaotic mess that is my life. Um, yeah, I think I'm just, I'm not articulating it very well, but I'm, I'm just trying to understand what's the alternative for lay people who, they've got a genuine interest, they really do want to ease their suffering, there's a fairly decent understanding of the Four Noble Truths going on there. Um, but, yeah, I <laughs> don't know if that was clear at all, if mm. what I'm trying to articulate. Um, yeah, I, I don't really see how they can do it any other way. Well, I, I would say it's not a question of whether monasticism or lay life. Yeah. It's much more of a, a sort of root attitude that that is there and so maybe it's more of a west coast thing than an east coast thing i I spent more of my time on the on the west coast um but uh there uh that was a um it was it was in a way it was rare amongst um uh, uh, i was yeah rare amongst the the lay community for people to have that uh that sense of um 
being a a, a dhamma practitioner as I mean, I'm not trying to be sort of speaking a pejorative way, but just uh, that's the the kind of mindset of a lot of people who were showing up for, to Buddhist events and 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 um, uh, you know talks and and re- retreats and such like. It was this sort of valuable and precious thing, but it's definitely added onto my life and that the sense of being ready to um, question the value system that, that one had or the, the 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 priorities or the things that people took as sort of precious and important so sort of non-negotiable in their life it was it was uh, uh, quite striking so um, so it was, uh, it was that was a, a theme that came up many many times when I was living there but uh, and also the, how how to skillfully raise the subject <laughs> where uh, because you know people do have a lot of sincerity, but they're not often the attitudes that we have are are uh, invisible to us. We're not we're not aware of what we're, we're carrying around, and that so with people with great sin- sincerity and commitment can be unaware that they're they're very definitely trying to practice dhamma on their terms, and that um, you uh, uh, and the the whole element of, of Renunciation, not in terms of necessarily so much of lifestyle, but of opinions, <laughs> views and opinions, was uh, um, quite strong, and that the, the, the putting the world into the framework of, of my opinions, my, my my attitudes, my my preferences, my needs, that, and and then not really acknowledging the limitation that comes from that. If that makes sense, it. Um, that uh, it's, it's tricky to think of an example of how, um, uh, say, <clears throat> well, I, I mean, it's I know people sitting on chairs is is <laughs> is a, a, a natural part of the, the the Buddhist world. But I remember one time um, uh, coming along to to lead a, a ten day retreat, and this person had brought their a lounger, a kind of a sort of chaise long that they kind of parked right in the middle of the meditation hall. It's like this is my meditation, this is my meditation seat, and no, you're not gonna, you're not gonna tell me to take it out of the meditation hall. It's like this is how I practice dharma: is I have my lounger in the middle of the hall and not really acknowledging the the impact that that would have on the people also in the hall, or what the the people leading the retreat might might feel about that. But yeah, this is my my uh, my meditation seat maybe that's not a, a brilliant example but it was um definitely you know i'm practicing on, according to my framework and here literally this is my framework i'm going to sit on <laughs> or can uh, be at my rec- my recliner in the middle of the, of the meditation hall and then when you suggest that's not a suitable thing or maybe you could just use one of the ordinary chairs it's like you know, how dare you you know, that kind of aramana arising, like, <laughs> who do you think you are? <laughs> and so that, um, uh, you know, that, that kind of, um, uh, of uh, not exactly entitlement, but just seeing things um, uh, as a, a, a kind of, uh, I would say, as, a, as an offshoot of the, the the cult of the individual and the kind of extreme individualism where 
yeah, I have my my choices, I have my rights, I do things my, I do things my way, and which has got its own benefits in some respects. But then it it also brings its limitations with it. And so anyway, it, it's a an interesting uh, theme to to ponder. I I don't pretend to have a sort of definitive view, but reading these words, it's like oh yes, <laughs> that's familiar territory. And uh, and I would also say people this side of the pond are not totally. We're not totally exempt from it on this side of the of the water, but um, it was uh, it was noticeable there, and that um, and that basically that 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 idea of practicing dhamma on my terms, just looking at that and feeling like that really is an oxymoron. <laughs> that there, you know, that that can't have any validity to it because if it's on my terms, then it's not really dhamma. But and that sense of Dhamma as uh, letting go of self-view, self-concern, self-centeredness. That's the intrinsic part of it. And so then the, the, the sad side of it, the tragic side, would be that when uh, over and over again, people find that the universe refused to operate according to their terms. <laughs> Damn it. it keeps, you know, the, the universe keeps upsetting my program and getting in the way. And uh, that uh, was, uh, you know, then you say, well, are you surprised? So those teachings on I am of the nature to age, I am of the nature to sick, and I am of the nature to die. But those are very, very helpful, though. The five subjects of frequent recollection. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise. Uh, our friend um, uh, Sogni Rinpoche used to call it California Dharma. <laughs> it's his expression for this kind of mindset. That you know, like yeah, I'm totally the the kind of sense of yeah, I really love the Dharma. It's the most important thing in my life. I'm totally detached. I just like to have nice things around, you know. I just like to have things according to my own preferences. And he was telling me this uh, story of how he was uh, staying at this very very posh house in Marin County, which is extremely wealthy county, just uh, uh, across the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco, and. Uh, <clears throat> He, so he was teaching a, uh, a, a retreat there in in that area and was staying with his family in Marin, uh, Marin County. And um, this fellow was expounding his um, particular perspective on life that, you know, he's he's not attached to any of this artwork or any of this kind of, this house with this kind of glorious view over the bay and such like. And so uh, 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 Sogni Rinpoche picked up this coffee pot and said, how much did this carpet cost you? So you've got like a handmade Turkish carpet. Yeah. Uh, about $35,000. So so you're not attached. And he kind of starts tilting the coffee pot. <laughs> so he said, so, you know, that you, you have this uh, this way of speaking that you're not attached. But how much are you not attached? And he, was kind of <laughs> he, said, I, uh, he said, okay, 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 stop. <laughs> you know, before he, he actually poured anything onto the carpet. So. Okay, I get your point, Rinpoche. You know, there's, I tell myself the story that I'm not attached, but actually there's a, there's attachment there. So I, I don't wish to belittle people's sincerity, but it, it is helpful to explore. You know, how much am I? Uh, how much am I? Even as a monastic, <laughs> how much am I doing this on my terms, and how much is it actually uh, that general that quality of surrender? There. Uh, not again, not to belittle the noble order of Anagarikas and Anagarikas, but the, there was an Anagarika here back in the day, 
who literally would never sit more than four feet away from the door. Like, he needed to have an escape, like physically. He would, whatever the situation was, he would always be near the door. And uh, I kind of uh, hadn't really made a, a point of noticing that. And he just said, oh yes, that's, that's deliberate, Ajahn. <laughs> like, so there was a, I need to be able to, I need to know I can get out. Okay, well, you know, you've made your commitment as an Anagarika and you're sincere about that, but there's still that. I need to make sure that I've got an escape that I can always, that, that the me can get out if I need to. So I thought, well, it's great that he's got that flagged. He can, he can talk about it and he recognizes it. <laughs> but, uh, uh, and that, you know, he just was quite content with always making sure he was near the door. But uh, I would say that was a, a, a another example of that. That yes, uh, I'm sincere. Yes, I'm committed. But yeah, <laughs> this is uh, there's some riders on this. There's a, there's a a, um, a kind of uh, those elements of of self view and, and grasping that they, they don't fade easily. I guess um, when you say much of the lay person, you can surrender, right? To some extent have to conform to certain things. So that letting go, that deep letting go that enables you to, to surrender completely. I think I think it would be very difficult, especially in America, to not fall through the net completely, which is why maybe it's um, self-preservation. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so it's an area worthy of, of contemplation and reflection. Anyway, to continue. Dharma is truth. If you reach the truth, there is no big or small, no happiness or suffering. There's peace. Even if there is thinking, the mind must be peaceful. If you experience phenomena, they'll be just right, with nothing to try to increase or decrease. The characteristics of the mind will be such that when the mind meets objects and conditions, it has this truth. So once again, going to the, that reflection upon scale, there's no big or small, and just seeing how... And the mind says big or small or long or short or quick or slow that these are things that the, uh, the qualities the mind is designating into being and that there that um, that isn't any kind of intrinsic quality that is uh, that is there but rather what the mind is adding on to the, the perceptions of the present it's like having only one chair in a room you sit there and when others come they have nowhere to sit. Mind is like this. The mental afflictions may come, but because dharma is in the mind, they have nowhere to sit down, so they'll have to go on their way. If you have mindful awareness of yourself, then when sense contact and mental activity give rise to the habits of desire, anger and delusion, there's no place for them to stay in the mind. There is one seat, and you are occupying it already, so the habits cannot sit. They'll leave the room. They can't move you from dharma. The path and the afflictions fight it out in the mind. If there's no one sitting there, the afflictions can sit down and become the owners. This means you don't have presence of mind. You don't understand dharma. So delusion can take the seat. Then there's no end to suffering. The path and defilements fight each other in this way. If the path is brought to fullness, then when things happen in the mind, we meet the dharma. This takes a person with energy. One who is not energetic will retreat at this point. The factors involved here are simply mind 
and its internal and external objects. If the mind is not fooled by these objects, what is the problem? Objects are objects. Mind is mind. This is listening to Dharma to make it reach the mind. When that happens and Dharma enters the mind, there's no problem. The path kills the afflictions with this meditation practice. So this image of having the, the one seat, um, this is actually a, a very frequent theme of Jack Cornfield's teaching, speaking of California uh, and Marin County. So uh, Jack Cornfield was the, one of the main founders of Spirit Rock uh, Center, also Inside Meditation Society in um, Massachusetts. And this is a, a very frequent theme. that He, uh, he was a, a monk with Ajahn Chah for a couple of years. And uh, this was one particular teaching that Jack picked up from his time with Lumpur Cha and uh, would use as a as a regular theme in his teaching, and the, um, and the this idea of a or this image of just having a single chair. So if mindfulness and wisdom is sitting in that chair, then whatever else shows up, there isn't anywhere for the for the the you know thoughts and feelings and uh, loves and hates and opinions. There's nowhere for them to sit down. They still arrive. They show up. They do their thing. They come and go, but. Um, they're not given a place to be established. They're not. Uh, not they're not given a, a landing place, a sitting place, and so I, I feel like that's also a very, um, uh, very helpful image. Uh, and uh, you know, you can probably find uh, the Lumpur Cha referring to this a number of times. Also, if you go through Jack Cornfield's teachings, say, taking the one seat is a, is a. Um, uh, 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 as I said, a frequently used image by him, and I feel that that's quite skillful. That uh, that sense of of being uh, present. There's mindfulness and wisdom established, and then whatever comes and goes, comfort, discomfort, happiness, unhappiness, um, sound, sight, smell, taste, touch, it all shows up. It does its thing, but it hasn't got a, a place to land. It hasn't got a place to to sit. So then, uh, as he says, the uh, the uh, they will leave the room. They can't. They can't move you from the Dharma. Also, and then going on to that second part of the of this um, passage, which is objects are objects, mind is mind. This is listening to Dharma to make it reach the mind. When that happens and Dharma enters the mind, there is no problem. So that uh, is a an a. a, a um, a, f- a format of, or an expression of the teaching that Lumpur Cha uh, got from his encounter with uh, Lumpur Man, and when he was, uh, he spent a very very short time with uh, Lumpur Man, uh, just two or th- just about three days, and uh, as he often referred to on the the uh, one of the teachings uh, that uh, that Lumpur Man gave at that at that time, was uh, in response to uh, Ajahn Chah's. Um, Questions about meditation practice, and he was uh, a, a young visiting monk there at uh, at um, the um, uh, the monastery where Lumpur Man was living at that time. This was in about um, somewhere in the in the late forties, about nineteen forty eight, forty nine. And uh, the 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 teaching that that was that was very uh, impactful was this uh, teaching that the the mind and its objects are intrinsically separate. That that was the the mind which is aware of the five khandas is intrinsically transcendent and separate from the five khandas. That's why liberation is possible. If every kind of knowing or awareness was was uh, I, was tied up or identified with the five khandas, then liberation would be impossible. But it's because there is uh, a, 
there is a, a, the, the primal aspect of awareness uh, is uh, transcendent of the five khandhas then uh, that's why liberation is possible just as in the the um, the the, uh, the chant that we do on the the unconditioned the atipikawe ajatang abhutang akatang sankatang there is the unborn unoriginated uncreated unformed if there was not uh, there um, uh, then uh, then Liberation from the born, the originated, the created, the formed would be impossible. But because there is the unborn, the unoriginated, the uncreated, the unformed, therefore liberation is possible from the world of the, of the born, the originated, the created, the formed. So that was a, a very potent insight of Lumpurman and, and that had a very powerful impact on the, the young Ajahn Chah as he was um, staying there for those few days. And that uh, and that became a kind of linchpin, a, a, um, a central feature of Lumpur his own practice and his teaching from that time on. That the confidence, so yeah, that there is this aspect of of mind, this quality of of knowing, this awakened awareness, which is not limited by the five khandhas, and that's why liberation is is possible. And then not only having the idea of it, but also the the living experience and realization of that. Then they say, "Oh, yeah, that's that's right. This is why, this is why this works. This is why the the uh, liberation is a, is genuine, is real, is a possibility." And so that gave him a tremendous confidence. And when uh, when he was asked, "Well, you, you only stayed with Lumpuman for three days. You know, why was it that you you didn't stay longer?" Um, one of the, the the comments he made on that was, well, if you're in, if you've been in the dark and the light comes on, you don't have to stay close to the light switch. Yeah, so the, <laughs> so that uh, the uh, the that was really a, a, an illuminating encounter, and then informed um, the way he practiced, the way he taught from that time onwards. So, any thoughts, questions? Yes. Um, you say that um, Ajatanga Sankatang is about awareness, but uh, the name of the sutta is Nibbana Sutta. So, is this the same thing? Oh, it's it's closely related. I would say that it's like the the <coughs> when the mind knows its own nature, then the experience is Nibbana, is peacefulness. When the when when the the uh, the mind is aware is uh, fully attuned to dhamma, then the the result of that attunement, that realization, is is the peace of nibbana. So they're related, I would say. Okay, but nibbana is a is a state. Uh, <laughs> it's a it's a description of an experience. So to call it a state uh, is uh, it's kind of uh, accurate, kind of not accurate. It's not it's not like a state amongst other states, but it's a description of an experience when the when the when the the heart is completely free of greed, hatred, and delusion. Then the the feeling tone of that uh, that arises from that that realization. Is peacefulness is is freedom. So that's called nibbana. It just means coolness, really. Any other thoughts, questions? Yes. 
um, yeah, the moving in and out of those, of, of these um, more or less peaceful states, sometimes they can be very, uh, very stark. Um, so I'm just wondering about the, what that pro, what kind of is governing that. It seems to be subtle or or, or less subtle, but that moving that movement from um, a settled and um, peaceful state back back out to the identified one. <laughs> Yeah, it can be subtle. It can be coarse. It can be uh, it can be quick or uh, or um, a, a very. It can be like a stark contrast, or it can be a, a almost invisible drift, or just like a, a slight misting over. All kinds, many and various, are the ways that the mind can drift into uh, into ignorance. So it's and one of the the aspects of of Dhamma practice is getting to know those uh, those qualities and also how those processes work of how when the mind can be sort of apparently sort of fully fully awake and and clear and then uh, a little while later it's like oh suddenly that <laughs> you sort of drifted off into a dull state or you've uh, or that you've uh, got drawn into some kind of um, uh, grasping a, a feeling or a, or a, yeah, a, a, an idea or a memory that oh how did we get here it was all vividly clear a moment ago and it was it was so clear it was like obvious i could never get caught up easily again and oh how did did i take a wrong turn somewhere <laughs> so just learning to 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 see how those processes work by you know observing over and over and so sometimes it's quite mysterious, uh, but that is uh, the that's the the result of you know many and various past causes and, and habits of attachment and identification and and just the the living process of having a body and a and a, a mind as all sorts of different influencing factors that uh, that can that can be brought into play. You know what you ate today, what time of day it is. Is it sunny? Is it rainy? Uh, who's sitting next to you? you know, <laughs> which cushion you're sitting on? You know, all kinds of uh, you know. There's all sorts of different factors, or what what uh, what level of uh, of alertness there is in the system. You know, so, just over and over and over again, watching how the patterns work, and getting to see how basically how ignorance arises of each and comes into the picture and and blurs that that clarity but, uh, uh, and all of us are, are different so uh, and then and we vary as individuals from time to time day to day in different situations so that sense of just getting to know the territory and looking at how those patterns work and sometimes it is mysterious to say that, okay now this this is definitely definitely clear now this is this is uh, you know, well established, and and the mind is not going anywhere. And, oh, somehow I switched off. What happened? I sleep at the wheel again. That uh, so it can be mysterious. Like, well, how did that happen? <laughs> and it's not always obvious, uh, but uh, over and over again, then we just 
observing how those patterns work and getting familiar with it. okay this is how it is sometimes I think that um, what seemed most maybe more perturbing than when it's more more frequently changing is when there was a period that was quite long that was very very steady and clear <laughs> and then and I things were arising to come in but like that description of the no no other chairs mm -hmm. just felt very it felt very easily kind of arising and passing and then that went on for a few months even and i thought oh i've got something's happened and i've got somewhere mm -hmm. like, and it drifted yeah it did it in the end it, it also kind of yeah passed yeah it, it's uh it, it's it, those things can be, um, you know, quite surprising how they they evolve. You know, sometimes there's more chairs, more empty chairs show up, and you were kind of <laughs> parked in what you thought was the one chair, but there's other other chairs show up that uh, those different states find a place to park themselves. And that, you know, I certainly had that kind of experience myself after like a, a long retreat, a sense of, oh well, that's uh, things. Things are like a, a very obvious how it all is, and this is this is really great. And that the um, obviously it's downhill from here on. <laughs> and then uh, what happens is that you get complacent, and you kind of you you find the at least I find that the mind takes hold of a memory of a particular quality of clarity or peacefulness, and and then the the arising of a, a desire or opinion or aversion or or laziness kind of gets woven in, and the mind sort of gives its reasons why oh, this is all this is all good, this is all okay, and we we the mind has actually drifted from that genuine clarity. It's got the memory of of that, and it's sort of that's its ticket, <laughs> that's its kind of its pass, and it, it feels like okay. Um, uh, 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 things are things are really good. Things are really clear, and uh, I've got sort of full objectivity in relationship to this. But all kinds of bi subtle biases have sort of drifted in, and then because you're telling yourself the story that actually everything's really clear and there's no attachment, there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of stuff drifting in. The the, the filters are down. Uh, you're not being as attentive it's like the the buffaloes wandered into the crops and you think i've got it you know my fence is totally secure you know i don't need even to look at it meanwhile the buffalo has eaten half the crop <laughs> and so that uh, that and that's a a, a, a very a, a kind of a common issue in spiritual practice and particularly if you have a like strong experiences from meditation retreats and like a powerful insights then the mind has some memory of that and you can call up the memory, but the uh, the the various biases, the the agati, the biases of aversion or fear or desire, opinions and so on, they can be um, having a, a a a very profound effect without you realizing it, because you know if you're telling yourself, "Hey, I'm <laughs> yeah, everything is good here," I don't, uh, that that. Uh, that uh, I've had this big insight, or I really understand things, or things are really clear, and it can be very deceptive, and you can get yourself in all kinds of, of trouble. 
especially that, that thought of, oh, well, that's, this is great. I'm free and clear now. It's just downhill from here on. And it will be downhill, but <laughs> not, in, not in the way that you were, you were, you were hoping for. So, yeah, in a way that when, if those kind of very bright, clear states arise from meditation retreat or, or particular events in one's life, then it's almost more important to be attentive. Okay, now pay really close attention because you can get quite complacent or just uh, uh, to taken over by the, the sight. If you, every time you close your eyes, things are very bright and clear and, and energetic, you go, oh, well, this is great. You know, the work is done, and then <laughs> it's like, no, it's not. <laughs> so, yes. Um, <clears throat> just in terms of distilling one's understanding or experience of that attunement of awareness, uh, is it enough to just try to incline the mind to abiding in that, or are there more, are there other? sorts of states that need to be, like fabricated states that need to be more consciously developed, like Anapanasati or Brahma-viharas or any other kinds of recollections that might help to kind of clarify that understanding? Uh, it, it kind of depends um, on the, the habits of mind, where, where the, there's particular areas where the mind gets caught up. Um, then if you know there's a... a particular inclinations like towards laziness or towards uh, being um, uh, you know uh, a bit you know, aloof or academic and, and uh, intellectualizing things then um, if you see that well there are these particular habits that that are easily lead to more obstruction or to more uh, more say uh, insensitivity or lack of attunement then it's like, okay well bring attention to that so like if you, if you know there's a, a tendency just to maybe just to sort of switch off or be feel remote then to lean into the brahma viharas of okay then it's a, a to sustain that quality of, of awareness and attunement okay then lean into the quality of loving kindness and, and open heartedness because there can be the easily so that can drift into it's all just sankaras arising and passing away you know and it's all just over there somewhere, and, I'm, and it's nothing to do with me. So, getting to know, like I was talking about this morning, getting to know your own character, your own personality, your own tendencies is really an important part of the practice. So that where the mind easily get gets lost, if if you've got a strong tendency of like, oh, uh, I really don't, uh, I don't have to bother. Great. If that, that's a, that's the sort of framework oh good it's it's the it's the weekend it's the day off it's the day after one pra i can switch off i don't have to bother i'm not reading your mind just just in case that might be the case it's common enough then then to recognize oh there's a there's a, a deeply a deeply worn track a, a kind of psychological habit of the <clears throat> idea of that you know, disengaging is good and bothering is is burdensome so then leaning towards bothering and putting energy into things and, and engaging because you can see that's a, a well-worn track that doesn't lead in a helpful direction. So it's kind of getting to know your personality traits and uh, and then uh, to seeing which of those lead to, to benefit and which lead to 
to attachment and confusion. So yeah, yeah, that's that's helpful. I think uh, in terms of like the way Lundpor Semedo usually talks about this kind of stuff, to put it in terms of like traditional Sutta language, I think about it as the recollection of peace or the recollection of dispassion or cessation. It sounds like you're saying those recollections are not a panacea for one's problems, but one might actually need to, you know, kind of condition the mind more skillfully with other other objects and then maybe kind of, you know, come back to those recollection, those like recollection of peace or mm-hmm. whatever in a, you know, at a later time. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I would say. That's, uh, just seeing, also, I'm a great advocate of seeing the uh, looking at the effects of uh, of what you're doing so if we're working with the mind in a particular way or applying a particular approach then i said okay where's this going like if you're driving you know just looking at the road signs you know what what's <laughs> what's the number of the road i think i'm on does it actually match where i where i want what i want to be on and so that sense of okay how does this this uh, how does this feel does this have a sense of going in a useful direction or not what's the What's the result of this? Um, and then uh, being guided a lot by by that. But uh, you know, those sort of uh, those kind of standard reflections, like the the recollection of, of peace or the recollection of of um, uh, of uh, like your own goodness, chaganusati, or the recollection of of death, marananusati, and so on. That they, uh, if there's a, a an application of, of those that they um, that they can be something that's very directly beneficial, but uh, it's uh, yes, uh, just trying things out and seeing where they go as a basic principle is I feel is the most helpful. Okay, to continue. If there is no one home. Unwanted guests can come and make themselves comfortable. They sit down and eat and make a mess. Is that the result you want? Because you don't understand dharma, and you don't know right and wrong, good and bad, and don't recognize the way the mind contacts objects and reacts, they push you all over the place. If things appear to be good, they'll smile and laugh. If they're bad, they make you upset, and you may come to tears. It's the same as the house with its owner absent. Spinning around like that, unable to separate things, this is a Dharma practitioner who doesn't really know Dharma. It's someone who's operating at a loss. So you have to meditate to get Dharma to enter your mind. That's why we listen to the Dharma on every Lunar Observance Day and other holidays. So in all activities and postures, learn to do this. When sense objects come, get a handle on them by remembering they are one thing and the mind is another. Separate them out. Otherwise, you don't know them. You follow what you perceive as good and bad, and this brings suffering. Not satisfied with them, you suffer. The mind is deluded by objects. The mind lacks discernment. So, set up mindful recollection and awareness of yourself. So again, going to that that theme of uh, the mind and its objects separating out. Another image that uh, Lumpur used to use um, in in Describing this, he's saying it's rather like uh, having oil and water together in a bottle. So our, uh, the the uh, the oil represents 
the quality of knowing or awareness uh, and the water represents mind objects normally in our lives we're shaking the bottle up the whole time so they seem to be one liquid because of our attachments and habits and and the uh, general flow of relating to the sense world and he said you know, you don't have to do much just put the bottle down and the oil and the water separate out on their own you don't have to make them separate it's just all you need to do is put the bottle down and they separate on their own because in their own natures they are they are immiscible they can't be mixed and so uh, that uh, uh, i found was a, a very very helpful image that um the uh, that if you just leave things alone just <laughs> rather than trying to force everything apart or trying to make uh, uh make a separation just that sense of of uh relaxed awareness uh kind of relaxed attention putting the bottle down then the quality of knowing and the objects of knowing and uh, then they separate out on on their own just like in this moment you know, there's the perception of being here in the in the sala and the dhamma reading going on that that which knows the sight sound smell taste and touch uh, the idea of this moment that which is is knowing it is is formless it has no form it, that, that awareness is is formless but it knows forms so that the the quality of knowing is is um if there's that sort of relaxation of attention then there can be that recognition oh yeah there's the knowing of this moment and it's got as many and various colors and forms and shapes and, and attributes but the, the mind isn't defined by that or limited by that it knows that but the mind which knows form is formless the, the and that it doesn't take a huge kind of uh, a huge effort or or any kind of refi- super refined mind state. It's just a, in, in essence, it's a shift of attitude. So, just putting the bottle down, letting them separate out, is uh, is that shifting of, of attitude, just the, the changing the the way the mind relates to the present. We say that in all postures you should keep the meditation on buddho in mind. Buddho means the one who knows. Sorry, buddho means that the one who knows is arising continuously. When objects come, you know them. When you can resolve things and can expound the truth. This is the fruit of buddho. Let there be the one who knows. Practice buddho just for this. This is called hearing dharma and realizing fruition, knowing dharma and practicing it. You should be practicing and seeing it so you become it in your mind. This is called one who understands and sees. This is the way that the Buddha's teaching bears fruit. So that's a, uh, in the Thai language, um, puru, pu comes from purisa, meaning person, the Pali, Ru is the word to know, so Puru um, is the one who knows, or the, the expression that's usually used to, to, um, uh, for that quality, the Puru. It's also uh, the description of the Buddha in the, the chanting that we do, Puru, Puda, and Pubhagbhan, uh, the one who knows, is a description of the Buddha as um, the, the enlightened, great enlightened teacher. But um, uh, when uh, this uh sometimes when using that kind of phraseology the one who knows or that uh, and using the puru as a way of referring to that awakened awareness 
that for uh, um, in some respects it can in, it can give the sense that there is a uh, you know a person that is knowing or that the the one who knows is like a, a an individual or, or a an I or a me that is doing the knowing, and so that uh, uh, so some of the the forest ajans instead of uh, using the pu the, the the term puru the 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 one who knows they use um, the word for datu which is the which means the element the element of knowing so tatru in the Thai language the element or the that quality of knowing rather than pu meaning a person the, so that that it takes away that personalizing tone uh, of the um, in the expression so any questions thoughts this is the end of the chapter the long chapter I used to keep a little bottle of oil and water up on the shrine when I lived at Chithurst uh, back in the the old in olden days. <laughs> and uh, that uh, on that from that very teaching of Lumpur Cha, I was a, a as a reminder that uh, the you know, oil and water in the bottle that they are intrinsically separate because uh, just as is the norm, you know, the mind gets very <laughs> does a lot of shaking of the bottle and. and uh, the the uh, the element of knowing and the objects of knowing get the thoroughly mushed up together, but uh, that simple principle of being able to put things down and letting them separate, I feel, is a very a very skillful way of describing the practice. It's not a, a heroic effort, but it's a particular effort that uh, that is made. That uh, that that's when that's when that effort is made, when things are just. Um, let go of when the attitude is allowed to shift then there's a uh, there's a, a a change of uh in the the way the mind holds his experience of of the sensory world any thoughts questions yes can i ask a question about the meditation It's often used as a mantra, kind of a mantra yeah. meditation. Um, uh, Lumpur uh, Fun, who was one of the uh, dis- disciples of, uh, of Ajahn Man, that was the, the basically uh, every Dhamma talk he gave was about Buddha, uh, apparently, that they say. And he was a um, very highly regarded teacher. And he would, but he would talk about it in many uh, various ways so that uh, it, it can be used as a like as a mantra as a concentration practice but also as a, a, a kind of basically as a reminder to you know, wake up wake up wake up wake up wake up <laughs> and that uh, it's more not so much a, a concentration practice as a, an encouragement to be awake to be be aware and there's many and various ways that uh, that you can use that but uh, yeah, so he was uh, uh, Lumpur Fun was was known as the the kind of Buddha. He could talk for hours and all these many and various different aspects of Buddha. It was uh, uh, a well known characteristic of his teaching. Thank you.
you know, I have that, I can see that there can be concentration also just that coming back, coming back to that uh, reminder of coming back to that Buddha nature. So we have a little time extra. So I also have along this um, book called The Tree in the Forest, a collection of Ajahn Chah's similes. So I thought uh, for the occasions when things might finish a little early, I could share one or two of these. So these are extracted similes of of Ajahn Chah's uh, extracted from a wide range of talks and uh, uh, memoirs of uh, time with Ajahn Chah. We have to talk about the Dhamma like this, using similes, because the Dhamma has no form. Is it square or is it round? You can't say. The only way to talk about it is through similes like these. This first one is called Aimless Wanderer. When we have no real home, we're like an aimless wanderer out on the road, going this way for a while and then going that way, stopping for a while, then setting off again. Until we return to our real home, whatever we do, we feel ill at ease, just like somebody who's left his village to go on a journey. Only when he gets home again can he really relax and be comfortable. Nowhere in the world is any real peace to be found. That's the nature of the world. Look within yourself and find it there instead. When we think of the Buddha and how truly he spoke, We feel how worthy he is of reverence and respect. Whenever we see the truth of something, we see his teachings, even if we've never actually practiced. But even if we have knowledge of his teachings, have studied and practiced them, but have still not seen their truth, then we're still homeless, like the aimless wanderer. That um, expression, our real home, is uh, one that... uh, he used from time to time to refer to the the jitta, the, the heart itself. That that's the the real home that we uh, we return to. This next one is called banana peel. When you see things in the world like banana peels that have no great value to you, then you're free to walk in the world without being moved, without being troubled, without being hurt in any way at all by all the various kinds of things that come and pass away, whether pleasant or unpleasant. This is the path that leads you to freedom. And then the last one, blind man. Both the body and mind are constantly arising and ceasing. Conditions are in a state of constant turmoil. The reason we can't see this in line with the truth is because we keep believing the untrue. It's like being guided by a blind man. How can we travel with him in safety? A blind man will only lead us into forests and thickets. How could he lead us to safety when he can't see? In the same way, our mind is deluded by conditions, creating suffering in the search for happiness, creating difficulty in the search for peace. Such a mind can can have only problems and suffering. Really, we want to get rid of suffering and difficulty, but instead we create those very things. All we can do is complain. We create bad causes, and the reason we do so is because we don't know the truth of appearances and conditions and try to cling to them. Maybe one more. This one's called a bottle of medicine. 
We can compare practice to a patient who doesn't take the medicine that his doctor has left for him. Although detailed instructions have been written on the bottle, all the patient does is read them and doesn't actually take the medicine. If this is all he does, he's bound to die because he'll gain no benefit from the medicine. And before he dies, he may complain bitterly that the doctor wasn't any good, that the medicine didn't cure him. He may think that the, that the doctor was a fake or that the medicine was worthless, yet he'd only spent his time examining the bottle and reading its instructions instead of actually taking the medicine. If he'd followed the doctor's advice, however, taken the medicine regularly as prescribed, he would have recovered. Doctors prescribe medicine to eliminate diseases from the body. The teachings of the Buddha are prescribed to cure diseases of the mind and to bring it back to its natural, healthy state. So the Buddha can be considered to be a doctor who prescribes cures for the illnesses of the mind, which are found in each one of us without exception. When you see these illnesses of the mind, does it not make sense to look to the Dhamma as support, as medicine, to cure your illnesses? So tomorrow being the observance day, and there won't be a reading, or the, or the day after, but uh, the next one should be on Monday, um, which is also the Ajahn Chah uh, anniversary day. So there will be probably readings in the morning and in the evening as well.